grievous thing that they found were that over a 10-year period, 86 children in their care had died, uh, and many of them had died unexpectedly uh, at a much higher rate than kids were dying elsewhere. The most disturbing thing that they found probably was that these deaths, uh, for the other than 13 of them, were not investigated internally. Good deal of the Trump base get very upset when there seems to be any sort of aggressive outreach to the black community and the brown community and trying to address their needs specifically. Even people on the left oftentimes mischaracterize this as pandering to so-called identity politics. But at the same time, unless you have an energized black and brown electoral base, it's going to be very difficult to defeat any Republican, uh, Mr. Trump not least. We ask Congress, we ask the United States, we ask the decision maker to please think about yourselves, think about families, think about children, and please restore TPS to give back hope, to give back life. Welcome to On the Ground, onthegroundshow.org, Voices of Resistance and Alternative News from the Nation's Capital. I'm Esther Ivera. And today we're staying focused on the real stories, the real news impacting people in the United States and the world. We're sifting through the lies and spin to bring you voices and stories that are not heard in corporate media. Ryan Grimm, Washington Bureau Chief for The Intercept, joins us to talk about dozens of children dying in the custody of for-profit foster care homes that are funded with our tax dollars. Gerald Horn will break down international affairs and we'll hear the voices of immigrants that came to the United States fleeing violence and other dangers in their countries who now face being stripped of their protective status that has allowed them to live and work unafraid and support their families here in the U.S. All that is coming up later in the show, but first our headlines. In Puerto Rico, journalists documented residents securing water from a contaminated Superfund site. Writer and activist Rosa Clemente told Democracy Now! that the government's poor response seems designed to drive the native population from the island, just as New Orleans residents were evacuated from that city after Hurricane Katrina. The people of Puerto Rico are dying. They want a Puerto Rico without Puerto Ricans. So from contaminated water to mothers who are not lactating to babies having to eat mashed bananas because baby food cannot be found to people getting on ice lines from 3 a.m. in the morning to 1 p.m. waiting for two bags of ice. This is massive violations of human rights. We were able to get to places that the military said they couldn't get to in a Kia and a Hyundai accent. Puerto Rico's governor, Ricardo Rosello, was scheduled to meet Trump in the Oval Office on Thursday and said he would tell Trump that he wants Puerto Ricans treated the same as other American citizens. Also in D.C. this week, scores of immigrants and advocates are meeting with members of Congress to urge them to support the Temporary Protected Status Program that is providing refuge for 300,000 people who have fled violence, war, and other dangers in their home countries. The Trump administration has announced a phase-out of the program, and Kenneth Rigmaiden, president of the International Union of Painters and Allied Trades, said at a Wednesday press conference that ending TPS would hurt families and the economy. As contributing members of the construction workforce, TPS recipients not only benefit our industry and our nation as a whole, they also strengthen the United States economy. 
TPS holders from Haiti, El Salvador, and Honduras alone contribute $4.5 billion annually in salary or pre-tax wages to the overall gross domestic product of our nation. That same population, which represents the three countries with the largest population of TPS recipients, is also estimated to contribute nearly $7 billion to Social Security and Medicare over the course of 10 years. This is a valuable economic force more powerful than any tweet, any slogan, or any short-sighted bigot who would seek to water down and distort the American dream for the sake of political expediency. We'll have more voices from those supporting temporary protected status for immigrants in the second half of the show. Now, in culture and media, it looks like Trump is winning his war on the media. According to a new political morning consult poll out on Wednesday, 46% of all people surveyed believe that news stories about Trump are fabricated, while 76% of Republicans say that the media publishes made-up stories about Trump. Also, Israel's army raided TV channels and media outlets across the occupied West Bank overnight on Tuesday, confiscating equipment, forcing broadcasters off the air, and arresting two Palestinians. In a statement, the Israel Defense Forces accused the media outlets of inciting terrorism, while the Palestinian journalist syndicate condemned the crackdown and promised to rally media workers outside UN offices in Ramallah. The movie of the week from the Alliance of Women Film Journalists, of which I am a member, is In Divine Order, which follows the attempt of women in a small town in Switzerland to gain the right to vote in 1970. Yes, I meant 1970. And the triumph in this movie is in portraying the human striving for freedom, fairness, and respect. The 1970s tornado of social change meets the cold front of patriarchy in this little town, and viewers are left to figure out where love might fit into the mix. The movie offers a tight, compelling ensemble of actors led by Marie Lewinberger, and it propels Petra Volpe's movie into the realm of awards consideration. And finally, at the Kennedy Center tonight, uh, that's Friday night. Carrie Mae Weems' project, Grace Notes, is about grace in the face of racism and violence. And Sarah Browning, founder of DC Poets Against the War and Split This Rock, is hosting a party for her new book, Killing Summer, at Trist and Adams Morgan in Northwest DC. And those are our headlines and happenings. When we come back this week, the Senate Finance Committee revealed that children are dying at for-profit foster care centers at an alarming rate. And Gerald Horn is coming up. Stay with us. Amina Alada Akta I am the one dreaming beautifully. Amina Alada Akta I do dream. I do dream. Amina Alada Akta Amina Alada Akta I do dream We want healing We want justice We want, we want freedom I do dream 
Navasha Dea, I Too Dream of Things Beautiful on On the Ground, onthegroundshow.org, Voices of Resistance from the Nation's Capital. I'm Esther Averam. Well, a bipartisan report released this week by the Senate Finance Committee revealed that children in the for-profit foster care system are dying at an alarming rate, but the story has gone virtually uncovered. Joining me on the line is Ryan Grimm, Washington Bureau Chief for The Intercept, here to tell us more. Welcome to On the Ground, Ryan. Oh, thanks for having me. Well, first, please start by just telling us about this report, which sounds really shocking, really. Yeah, the Senate Finance Committee spent two years uh, working on this report. And uh, as you may have noticed, the committees and the Senate don't do much in a bipartisan fashion, but both the uh, Republican chairman and the Democratic ranking member got together and did this one collectively. And they reached out to all 50 states in the District of Columbia to ask them for details about their foster care programs and oversight of their foster care programs. And and, uh, that's more or less how they ended up putting this report together. And they zeroed in on this, the largest for-profit foster care company known as the Mentor Network, which is actually owned by a company called Civitas Solutions, which trades on the New York Stock Exchange, Hmm. all of which might be surprising to a lot of people who who didn't know that you could kind of buy and sell shares of profits coming off of uh, foster kids. Exactly, yeah. No, I didn't know. I was going to ask you. Most of us don't even know that there is a for-profit care system. So I don't want to get away from the report, but just give us a little information about this industry. Yeah, so... the. It's a numbers game for a lot of these companies, and some of them are not-for-profit, and if they are a non-profit, that doesn't necessarily mean that they're going to be delivering uh, better or more compassionate care. It just may mean that the, that the profits are, are flowing to very large salaries for people that are running the non-profit. So we don't want to go too far in, in kind of distinguishing between these two, but the, the numbers game kind of goes like this. It, states uh with with the help of federal matching funds you know pay you know somewhere between and it, you know it ranges from state to state and, and county to county but somewhere around 4 to 5 6000 per child per month for one of these group homes to take care of uh so if you start doing the math uh the the money starts adding up fast you know let's say you you have a a house you know out in the woods somewhere in North Carolina with uh, ten kids in it. You know now you're now you have you know forty to fifty thousand dollars a month of revenue coming in, you know which adds up to some you know six hundred thousand dollars a year or so wow. to take care of those kids. They're spending a fraction of that. You know they're relying on very low wage labor. Uh, so you're talking you know between fifteen and thirty thousand dollars a year for you know a handful of of staff which are who are turning over you know very quickly. And then the rent in these areas is not not terribly high, so you know you're talking you know ten ten twenty thousand dollars of that goes to rent, you know. And then you've got you know food and you know, other expenses of of running a running a home, but you very easily see how even with a small house with only ten children in it, you, you, a company 
uh, or a nonprofit could walk away with several hundred thousand dollars in profit just from that one house. Wow. So what did they find when they looked at Mentor, the Mentor Network? I mean, the most grievous thing that they found were that over a 10-year period, 86 children in their care had died, uh, and many of them had died unexpectedly uh, at a much higher rate than kids were dying elsewhere. The most disturbing thing that they found probably was that these deaths, uh, for the, other than 13 of them, were not investigated internally. And in many of the cases, the autopsies uh, for these children were not even attached to the to the case files and it's it's hard to hard to think of anything more poignant than that that these children lived and died in such a brief period of time and so little uh, care was given to their their short existence that that even their case file that's now closed and gathering dust you know can't even be bothered to have the autopsy included in it well wow. so does that mean the autopsy was done or it just wasn't included not necessarily. Uh, in many cases, it means that one was done, but the uh, whoever was managing the case file, you know, wasn't concerned enough to make sure that the autopsy was included in in the file, which goes to the point that of uh, I guess seventy four of these cases where children died, there was no internal investigation into into what happened. You know, you would think that that a child dies in your under your care, you'd automatically do an internal investigation. And, and you know, let's say you find out, oh, this was this was somebody who had leukemia, and we did everything we could for them. It would be good to know that and to, to right. run that run in that investigation. But in many cases, these were not children who died of leukemia in the care of the mentor network, but children who died unexpectedly, and 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 that there was no investigation into how that happened. You know, I think is a window into you know how much concern was given. So just give me an example of maybe a couple of places where this mentor network has homes. And was there any outcry from the community, from the actual biological parents? I mean, I can imagine, you know, just knowing a little bit about the foster care system that very often people still want their children, but they can't get them. They may have a drug problem. Different things are happening so that it doesn't mean that the parent doesn't want their child, but the, the court is not allowing them to have the child. So do you know anything about those cases? Yes. So in fact, and this is something that the committee pointed out, that they paid out a significant sum, I don't remember the exact figure, over that time period in wrongful death uh, or other settlements. Mentor Network did. Exactly, yeah, with with these parents who, like you said, it's not cut and dry. It's not like these parents are are dead and gone. Many of them probably never should have had the kids taken away uh, in the first place and and were the victim of kind of an overreacting system. Others may have been going through a hard stretch and uh, were now in in recovery. Let's say, you know, let's say they were, you know, they had some type of substance abuse issue, but now they're in recovery. Right. We in this country, as, as I'm sure this is what you're alluding to, we don't, we don't make it very difficult for people to get a second chance. And so if, if somebody loses their kids, they can, they can do everything right. They can check every box. They can be sober. They can be employed. They can be current on all their bills, and it won't matter. It's still extraordinarily difficult you know, to, get their, to get their kids back. I think you meant we don't make it very easy for people to get their children back. Now, one of the things that you said in your, your article on The Intercept is that when this story was reported, 
the I guess the shares of is it Civitas went down, but then when it didn't get any coverage, the shares shot back up. I mean, I just thought that was the most heartbreaking thing. Yeah, right. It's like, oh, hey, look, uh, nobody cares. Everybody back in the pool. Um, and you know, as you know, with the stock market, you can never um, you can never say you know precisely what caused one move one way or another. No, no, no analyst ever ever can because things are moving all over the place. But but yeah, if you look at the chart, it's it's striking. And I just I just pulled it back up to see where it is now, and it's it's almost it's almost exactly where it was when the report came out right now. And in fact, yesterday it even it even ticked up above where it was uh, huh. before the report came out. Well, what will be done with this report? Will it lead to anything? What's the next step? Will there be a next step? The goal of the report is for things like this to have happened, you know, for you and I to be talking about it and for people to learn about some of the problems with, with the system so that people will learn that there are a couple bills in Congress now to, to radically reform the foster care system, probably not as, as radical as it needs to be, but there's, you know, there are, are a couple different bills. One is a new one that was just introduced in conjunction with this report that would penalize states if they don't meet federal standards for foster care. But the, the kind of more important one called the Family First Prevention Services Act nearly became law in 2016. And its backers, who include the authors of, of this report, think that they have a, a good chance of making it law this year. And what it would do is it would flip the emphasis from removing children and putting them in, in warehouses to supporting families so that the children can stay with their families under the uh, what sounds to me like common sense reasoning that, that kids are better off with their parents uh, and that not all parents are perfect and and that no, nobody is necessarily born knowing how to be a perfect parent. And, and if people are going through problems, then as a society we should support them and help them grow and uh, you know, move, move through their problems uh, so that they can keep their family together. You know, when you were mentioning that, I thought of an interview I did, I think it was in June, with the Reverend Edward Pinckney out in Michigan, Benton Harbor. And in terms of talking about how corporations just have such free reign in that town, uh, city, he told me that if you get your water cut off, they condemn your house and then they come and take your children because you're living in a condemned <laughs> house. And this is all coming from the fact that you might not have been able to pay your water bill. So anyway, I'm just giving you that as an example. That's, yeah, that's exactly right. And it would say, look, no, no, you're, you're, we're not going to, we're going to do everything we can to keep this family together rather than do everything we can to break this family up. Right. And what's the name of that legislation again? The Family First, uh, Family First is the thing that you can, people can just Google Family First Act and probably get them there, but it's the Family First Prevention Services Act. Okay. And then what, at what stage is that right now? Is it in the House, the Senate, the... It's both. So last year, it last year it passed the House unanimously uh, on on a voice vote, and it was going to be attached to a bill on the lame duck, and it nearly passed unanimously in the Senate. But 
Senator Richard Burr, a senator from North Carolina, uh, went to Mitch McConnell and asked him to take it out because a group of uh, a network of group homes from North Carolina you know, reached out to, to the North Carolina delegation and asked them to stop this legislation because it would have constricted the flow of revenue that was going to these group homes where they were, you know, like I said, making four to five thousand dollars per kid. So the the politics of it now are they need to, they need to figure out a way to either get it to a vote because if it goes to a floor vote it would pass because it has overwhelming support uh, and if they can't get it to a floor vote because time on the floor is precious and the Senate is not accustomed to giving anything precious to foster children uh, if they can't do that then they have to figure out a way to satisfy whatever concerns Richard Burr has with the issue so that he'll remove his objections to it okay. Well, I did want to ask one more thing, and that was really in terms of looking at the report or actually speaking to the authors. Is there any one particular case that really stands out for you that really, I don't know, that you remember in terms of these children that died in custody of, you know, facilities that the government's funding? You know, this, uh, you know, almost any, no, no particular story, and, you know, almost anybody who's who's gone through this system, you know, has seen all different variants of it. But the common story is, is one in which the children don't really have anybody that they can trust. And so they wind up, they, they grow up, um, you know, damaged, you know, psychologically damaged because, you know, everyone in their life that they've interacted with has been using them in one way or another, you know, whether it's the kid who shows up with a foster uh, parent who is just taking them into take the paycheck and that's by no means all of them there are many 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 guardians out there who are who are absolutely wonderful people and we need more of them um, but there are many who are just in it for the for the fee uh, and you know mistreat kids time after time again and the report found you know instances you know often found instances of, of that happening and then the foster parents getting more kids sent to them even after you know documented problems with the with previous ones Okay, well, I hope that we can stay in touch with you to keep talking about family first. And, you know, that sounds like some type of legislation policy that I know our listeners would like to hear more about and get behind. All right. Looking forward to it. Okay. I've been speaking with Ryan Grimm, Washington Bureau Chief of The Intercept. Thank you, Ryan. Thank you. Smile. America, America. Friday nights and go 
that was Crossroads with Raheem Devon and Wes Felton on On the Ground, onthegroundshow.org, Voices of Resistance and Alternative News from the Nation's Capital. I'm Esther Averam. And now we're going to turn to international affairs with our geopolitical analyst, Professor Gerald Horn. Well, Gerald, I want us to backtrack and talk about the Iran nuclear deal. I'm probably not the only one who's confused about where we stand. I do know that Trump said that he would decertify it or that he would challenge portions of it. But are we still in the deal or not? Technically, the United States is still part of this nuclear deal. Actually, it reminds me of the Paris Climate Accord, because even though Mr. Trump has announced that the United States will be leaving this accord, technically, the United States is still part of that accord and will be part of it for some months to come. And in fact, is participating in international meetings with regard to this accord. Now, obviously, this is a kind of two-faced approach by the Trump administration, but I don't think your audience will be surprised with the fact that he has one foot in and one foot out. He's basically thrown the Iran accord into the arms of Congress, asking Congress basically to take the ball and run with it by imposing stiffer sanctions on Iran, which effectively will blow up the accord. The problem there is that the so-called U.S. allies, principally London, Paris, and Berlin, were the ones who started the United States on this road to negotiating with Iran in the first place. And of course, it's a joint accord, basically solidified and signed by the United Nations Security Council. So even if the United States pulls out of the accord, that doesn't mean that the accord then becomes valid, although I dare say that the Iranians will not be enthusiastic about staying in this accord if the United States, its chief antagonist, uh, pulls out. It's even more unfortunate because there are commonalities that might link the United States and Iran. I'm thinking of the struggle against the so-called Islamic State, although in my heart of hearts, I do believe that at the end of the day, the United States might decide it has more in common with the so-called Islamic State than the Islamic Republic of Iran. In any case, hmm. the answer to your question is that, yes, the United States is still technically part of this accord with Iran. Hmm. You know, as you were describing that, I couldn't help but think about domestically the ACA, which is technically still in operation but it's being crippled day by day by the Trump administration that keeps pulling funds away from it, threatening to pull funds away from it, uh, weakening whatever it can in the bill to make health care and make that legislation just unworkable. So I guess that's just a strategy on a, a number of fronts. Obviously, Mr. Trump is taking a, a kind of step-by-step approach to wrecking domestic Uh, issues like the Affordable Care Act and wrecking international issues like the Nuclear Accord and the Paris Climate Accord. But we should be clear about his ultimate goal, which ultimately is destructive. Hmm. Well, speaking of destructive, we were talking last week about the secret war, uh, so-called secret war in, in Niger, and, and the fact that four American servicemen were killed. And of course, this week, that whole issue blew up in terms of how, I actually, I think there were a number of issues, but, but one of the issues was how uh, President Trump spoke to the family 
of one of the soldiers. And so I just want to get some kind of update on that. I just kind of feel like we're not really dealing with the the larger issue about why we're there and and the role of the U.S. in Africa right now. Well, I think why the United States is there is evident. That is to say, it's technically and ostensibly to fight religious zealots in Somalia, in north-central Africa, such as Niger, in Mali, northern Mali, and of course the uh, unraveling of northern Mali is a direct result of the ill-advised U.S. intervention in Libya in 2011, which opened the door for religious zealots to take over uh, northern Mali. But we should also mention, as we've mentioned previously, that this so-called secret war in Africa presents enormous opportunities for corruption, not least because there is so much secrecy shrouding it, uh, which uh, allows for that kind of corruption to flourish, but also because I'm afraid that in the United States there's a, a kind of ignoring of events in Africa which allows this kind of corruption to flourish and fester. Now, with regard to the soldier who was killed there, I don't find it accidental that Mr. Trump is thought to have insulted the widow of the black American soldier who was killed. This is consistent with his consistent disrespect to the black community, and of course, it's also consistent with how he's maltreated Puerto Rico in the wake of the hurricane. Uh, what I find disturbing in particular is not only Mr. Trump's remark, supposedly he told the widow that her now dead husband knew what he was signing up for when he joined the U.S. military. It's not like working for the post office. Uh, that's my words, not his, by the way. But also that General Kelly, his chief of staff, whose son also died uh, in, in a war, in a U.S. war, has intervened aggressively on the side of Mr. Trump and has sought to dispute the allegation that Mr. Trump was disrespectful and has also dragged in the previous administration, that of Mr. Obama, into the equation, uh, basically co-signing Mr. Trump's notion that Mr. Obama was not necessarily aggressive in terms of reaching out to the loved ones of the sea soldiers. So once again, we have an, another big mess that has been initiated by the 45th president of the United States of America. Well, that's quite true. It's quite a mess. But at the same time, I think that you are among the observers who believe that he has a chance to be reelected. The stunt that Mike Pence performed, um, I guess, a couple of weeks ago at this point, walking out of the, the, the football game between Indianapolis and San Francisco was revealed to be used as a fundraiser. You know, somehow that this this whole thing was being used to, to raise funds for Donald Trump's reelection campaign. So so why why are you one of these people who believe that Trump actually has a chance to be reelected? Well, I'm just looking at the analyses that have been appearing in the mainstream press, the corporate media in recent days, which have been has have been suggesting as much. But also, I don't feel that the opposition to Trump has dealt with a fundamental contradiction. For example, we have the governor's race in Virginia about to be decided soon, and we know that former President Obama is campaigning for the Democratic contender. 
But we also know that a good deal of the Trump base and a good deal of the electorate that is designated as being moderate white voters get very upset when there seems to be any sort of aggressive outreach to the black community and the brown community and trying to address their needs specifically. Even people on the left oftentimes mischaracterize this as pandering to so-called identity politics. But at the same time, unless you have an energized black and brown electoral base, it's going to be very difficult to defeat any Republican, uh, Mr. Trump not least. Not only that, but Mr. Trump is pandering to the crudest sentiments of his base by singling out National Football League athletes who are mostly black. And then at the same time, the reason why you've had Brexit, the British exit from the European Union and the election of Mr. Trump, both in 2016, have a lot to do with the fact that both London and Washington were at the tip of the spear during the Cold War and both found it necessary to effectuate their policies to try to weaken trade unions and weaken left-wing trade unions in particular. And that particular issue has yet to be addressed. And until you have a reinforcement and a strengthening of trade unions, it seems to me as well we're going to have to deal with Trump, if not Trumpism. So I'm not saying that Mr. Trump is going to be reelected. As a matter of fact, I'm going to work like the devil to make sure that he's not. But right now, as of 2017, things are not very encouraging, I'm afraid. Well, I did want to ask you about one more thing. The uh, election in Austria, there was a, a piece I read in, I think it was Common Dreams, that just talked about how uh, the election there was kind of a warning sign for progressives. I wanted you to, to kind of delve into that a little bit. Well, it really is, because, as you know more than most, the on-the-ground show has been in the vanguard of raising the specter of fascism, and we know that if fascism does arise, it won't be in one country alone, that you'll have to look for international signs as well. And in that context, it's very disturbing that the neo-fascist Freedom Party in Austria got double digits, I believe 25% of the vote, and may be expected to go into a coalition government with the victorious People's Party, which is a right-wing party in and of itself. And then in Germany, the so-called alternative for Germany, the neo-fascist party, got double digits in the election. Both parties are Islamophobic. Both parties are violently anti-immigrant. And this may seem disconnected, but I have to bring up the recent comment by the Swiss banker, Mark Faber, who oftentimes appears on U.S. television commenting on matters financial, where he basically said that it was a good thing that the United States was colonized by, quote, white people, unquote, and not, quote, black people, unquote. If it had been the latter, he suggests, the United States would have, quote, ended up like Zimbabwe, quote, unquote. And not only that, but he went further to endorse the issue of enslaving of Africans as being justifiable, since supposedly this had been taking place for centuries. Even diehard Confederates don't go that far. And so when you have these disturbing signs coming out of Europe, I think it's time for all of us to be concerned. And, of course, that ties into my previous point about the possibility that Mr. Trump may be reelected in 2020. Okay. Well, thanks for that, uh, breaking all that down. Uh, I've been speaking with Professor Gerald Horn, our geopolitical analyst here at On the Ground. 
He is author of many books, including the most recent, The Rise and Fall of the Associated Negro Press, Claude Barnett's Pan-African News and the Jim Crow Paradox, and Storming the Heavens, African Americans and the Early Fight for the Right to Fly. Thank you so much for joining me today. Well, thank you. I'm like this. Mama, I'm paranoid from the police guys. Cause the police man might take my life. What's freedom of speech without my rights? When I, I can't, I can't, I can't breathe. How many more sons, how many must die? How many must march with a protest sign? They take my life, take my life. I was unarmed. On CNN every day. Crossroads with Raheem Devon and Wes Felton on On the Ground, onthegroundshow.org, Voices of Resistance and Alternative News from the Nation's Capital. I'm Esther Averam. Well, also in D.C. this week, scores of immigrants and advocates are meeting with members of Congress to urge them to support the Temporary Protected Status Program that is providing refuge for more than 300,000 people who have fled violence, war, natural disasters, and other dangers in their home countries. The organizations held a press conference on Wednesday, and the first speaker you're going to hear in this next segment we're going to play is Martha Aravalo, and she's executive director of Carison LA, uh, an organization that advocates for the rights of Central American immigrants. But there were uh, a number of organizations there uh, representing labor, representing people from the African diaspora. And so here are, they, here are their voices now. Good morning, buenos dias. Um, as Lady mentioned, my name is Marta Rebola. I'm the executive director of the Central American Resource Center, Carecen, in Los Angeles. And I think we get the award for coming the farthest uh, this morning. Carecen would like to first give a big thank you to our labor partners and allies, the iron workers, the bricklayers, IUPAT, Unite Here, UFCW, and also some community um, organizations who are working with us to push for uh, TPS, African uh, Communities Together, uh, uh, Dr. Black Network, for being here today because together we stand in support of TPS beneficiaries. Garrison has been involved with Temporary Protected Status, TPS, since its creation through legislation in 1990 when Congress established a procedure for the administration uh, to provide TPS to immigrants in the U.S. who are unable to return to their country because of ongoing armed conflict, environmental disasters, or other extraordinary and temporary conditions. Currently, the three countries that have the largest populations protected under TPS are El Salvador, Honduras, and Haiti, totally more than 300,000 people. These TPS beneficiaries have had work permits for more than 18 years in the case of Hondurans, uh, for more than 16 years in the case of Salvadorans, and for more than 7 years in the case of Haitians. TPS beneficiaries renew their TPS every 18 months, paying a fee of $495. 
and submit to an FBI background check every 18 months. TPS beneficiaries work, contribute to their communities, and pay their taxes. They own homes, they own businesses, employ people, and have made their lives in the U.S. Unfortunately, the TPS program is under attack. The administration has already ended TPS for the Haitian community and the Sudanese uh, community and has threatened to end TPS for Central Americans. We're here today as allies, community, labor, and TPS beneficiaries uh, to work together to stand in support of those that are most affected. Together, we urge the administration to extend TPS and to work with Congress to find permanent solutions. We also urge congressional leaders to work with TPS leaders to develop a legislative proposal that allows them to adjust to permanent residency. Please champion this cause. We're working with TPS beneficiaries on a national campaign to increase the understanding of TPS and to uplift the powerful stories of people with TPS and their families. There are neighbors, there are co-workers, there are friends. The national campaign um, is being led by the National TPS Alliance, and we're holding a conference here in D.C. next week, starting on, actually this week, starting on Saturday until the 25th, where 350 TPS beneficiaries from all over the country will come together to meet with legislators to tell their story about how TPS has benefited their lives and their communities. We invite you all to support us in support of TPS. Up next, we have President James Boland from the Bricklayers um, that will be sharing about why they're here too today. Good morning, everyone. First of all, I want to say that I am delighted and honored to be here with my colleagues and friends to speak on behalf of uh, temporary protected staff status recipients and to be with you all to carry this message to whomever and wherever we need to take it. I think it's a very important message. So in our country, the United States is a nation of immigrants. It always has been and it always will be. Our union, the BAC, was built by immigrants and like our country, America, it is enriched by the diversity that comes with our heritage. I really believe that in the core of my being. Approximately 80% of TPS recipients have jobs, they pay mortgages, they pay taxes, and they work in industries that are critical to our economy. They also merge into the communities and the fabric of our country and help strengthen it and enrich it in so many ways. About 23% of TPS recipients work in the construction industry. Terminating TPS would negatively impact the U.S. economy and separate families, not to mention you know, how much depends on goodwill, both in society and globally. So enriching the goodwill of our country and proper treatment of temporary protected status recipients is so important to all that. So for many TPS recipients, um, their protective status was granted due to natural disasters and the crippled economies, the political stability, and the chaos in their own countries. And from a humane point of view and a generous American point of view, it's very important to bring that message to the surface and support them in every way we can. Thank you all very much. Next, we have Patrice Lawrence, Policy Director of the Lucky Black Network. Please help us welcome her. Good morning, everyone. I 
right. We're here today and we're facing a unique situation. TPS is at risk of being holistically terminated, and this is not what is customary. Usually we deal with things on a country-by-country -country basis, but we felt the need to come here all together, united to protect all countries, um, including black undocumented people who I represent in this room. And uh, historically, TPS has been a bipartisan issue. It has been one that has affected several countries. We're at risk of war, food insecurity, natural disasters, since, of course, that's no respecter of origin. Um, what else we know is that four out of the ten countries that have TPS are black-majority countries. Uh, so Sudan, South Sudan, Somalia, as well as Haiti. And then we've got the others that are in Africa, Northern Africa, so we're talking about Yemen and uh, Syria. Um, and we know that this amounts to about 60,000 people, of which Haitians represent over 50,000. The deadline to renew for Haiti is November 23. So we have to be talking about this right now. Of course, we've seen that this administration has worked a little fast and loose with the deadline, so we're also mindful of that. One more thing that we're mindful of is the discrimination the blatant discrimination of this administration, which is why Black did file a FOIA uh, earlier this year uh, when the decision came up for Haiti because we saw that they were investigating uh, the criminal background of these individuals, even though they're vetted every 18 months, um, as well as trying to figure out if they're on public benefits for which they're not eligible. So we're in a totally different landscape, but I just want to make sure that that's crystal clear. And when we talk about xenophobia, it's not just a nice word to say. Um, it's actually a terrible word. Um, but it's, uh, it's the truth, and, and we've got the facts to back that up. And then the other country I want to mention really quickly is Liberia, who uh, TPS ended for earlier this year, but they do have uh, deferred enforced departure until April 2018. So why are we talking about this now? Because it's urgent. Why do we need some sort of a bill, some sort of a, of a legislative solution? Because it is urgent and because DHS has made it their priority to holistically end the TPS program. And since they're doing new rules, we have to operate as well with new rules. Um, temporary protected status is a permanent program for people of color representing African, Caribbean, Latinx, Afro-Latinx, Arab, Afro-Arab, European, and Mediterranean populations. To end this program is to blatantly hinder the progress of over 300,000 people of these nationals who are from developing countries still in dire circumstances. We encourage DHS not to play politics with the lives of so many, since this is a humanitarian issue. And to end on a nice, happy note, in your packets you'll see uh, I have a story from one of our own TPS recipients who's from Haiti, Lise. She likes to study shrimp. She is a biology student in Florida. And uh, she comes from a family that has mixed status and ending TPS program will severely hinder her life since she's been in the U.S. for the majority of her, uh, her, her young life. Um, and so I just want to stress that the persons who have TPS, they are people, first and foremost. Um, but in addition, they are students, they're hospitality workers, they're healthcare providers, they're domestic workers, they're educators, they're scientists, they are children, and we have to act now. So please raise your voices with us, and we really appreciate you being here. And up next, we have President Eric Dean from the Iron Workers. Good morning. Our union was formed over 120 years ago by immigrants. This country, with the help of my union, was built by immigrants. 
And today, it's no different than it was in our early formation. Our union has fought for the workers' protection and wages, fringe benefits, and on-job site safety. But we do so much more. We provide them with a quality life, both on the job and away from work. The disruption by the elimination of TPS or the slow eradication is going to affect the continuity and the safety both on the job site and after it'll affect the family members at home. So what we're asking is Congress and this administration to protect workers and to consider making a permanent pathway to citizenship or, or allowing for our members to have their time with their family and enjoy what they're working for, not only through their wages, but for their retirement security that they've put in for and provided. We feel that right now, we have temporary protected status workers in our union that have more tenure in our union and at their jobs than some of the members of Congress or this administration. And there's gotta be an equivalence to that and so not only do we want the TPS to be addressed and made permanent and fixed, but we're also looking for that same thing for the deferred action of childhood uh, arrivals. And the issue for us is this country's got to wake up. Our union has fought for workers. We'll continue to fight for workers. We'll fight for our members. And there's only one card our union has ever cared about, and that's its union card. Thank you very much. Next, we have Dr. Sona Conate, who is a community leader here in D.C. and also collaborator with the African Communities Together. Good morning. Buenos dias. Bonjour. Yes. Um, I'm from Guinea, and all my life I have been, I was working with refugees in refugee camps across Guinea and also in Kenya, in very remote areas. So as a medical provider, as a humanitarian, as a public health worker, I know how the situation can be dire in certain conditions. In 2014, Ebola struck in my country, Guinea. And not only Guinea, also in Liberia and Sierra Leone, we are neighboring countries. That was a disaster. Not only for Guinea, for Liberia, or for Sierra Leone, but for the entire world. Mm -hmm. Now we are all connected. The scare of spreading the disease, so everybody stood on the effects. But amidst that despair, came hope how some citizens who have been here in this country for 15 years, 20 years, they had the opportunity of benefiting of TPS. For, with the TPS, for the first time in their life in the United States, they were able to become citizens, to apply for jobs, to work, and to be able to make a living for themselves, to come out of the hole, as they say. I interviewed some of my fellow citizens yesterday, she's in Michigan, and she lost her TPS. She told me, Sona, I feel like a less than a human being. I'm in a house, no longer driving, having to depend on everybody to give me a lift, and she's not working. But guess what? She can't stay this way. She will find a way to work again. And how? Maybe in an illegal way, she will work underground, and uh, that will always be another vicious cycle to again fall into that dark cloud we are trying to avoid. So what I wanted to say is that we give people hope and we get hope from them. So 
we need to restore TPS. Yes. We need to understand that diversity is what makes this country great. We all come from every walk of life of country, and that's what makes it beautiful. So we ask Congress, we ask the United States, we ask the decision maker to please think about yourself, think about families, think about children, and please restore TPS to give back hope, to give back life. Thank you. It is really with great honor that I introduce to all of you our president, Ken Rick Maiden, um, to the stage and to close out our press event. So, 23%, I want to say that first. Then, opportunity and title. Today, the rights of IUPAT members, along with thousands of working families and tradespeople across the United States, are at risk. This policy, removing TPS, would remove protections from union members at a recipient's temporary status, a status which allows them to safely reside and work within the United States. This is nothing less than an attack on the American dream. TPS was born of compassion and common sense. It makes it possible for workers here under protective status to become community leaders union members, and business owners safely without the fear that comes with instability. This strengthens our workforce, our economy, and our industries. 23% of TPS recipients are workers and have found employment in the construction sector. How could we not pay attention to that? 23%. Think about that. And as a result, these TPS-eligible workers have become an integral part of our industry, working in our trades, and becoming members of our union. They are our friends. They are family. They are the fabric of America. They are hopeful and proud for, and stand for what who, Lady Liberty holds in her torch. And they are members of our union family who we will protect, advocate for, and support. As contributing members of the construction workforce, TPS recipients not only benefit our industry and our nation as a whole, they also strengthen the United States economy. TPS holders from Haiti, El Salvador, and Honduras alone contribute $4.5 billion annually in salary or pre-tax wages to the overall gross domestic product of our nation. That same population, which represents the three countries with the largest population of TPS recipients, is also estimated to contribute nearly $7 billion to Social Security and Medicare over the course of 10 years. This is a valuable economic force more powerful than any tweet, any slogan, or any short-sighted bigot who would seek to water down and distort the American dream for the sake of political expediency. <laughs> Opportunity. Entitled. As the facts show clearly, TPS is important not only to the protection of foreign-born nationals seeking refuge from armed conflict, natural disasters, and any other extraordinary conditions, but also for our industries, our unions, our workers, and the economy of the United States. 
Research shows that ending TPS for recipients from Haiti, El Salvador, and Honduras alone would have a far-reaching impact on the national economy, including $3 billion in cost to taxpayers, a loss of $45 billion in GDP over the next decade, the loss of that $6.9 billion in Social Security and Medicare contribution, and over $1 billion for employers and turnover costs associated with terminating these employees. It would in turn also adversely affect our union, our industry, and the workers that we seek to represent. As the current administration currently expands its anti-immigration and frankly anti-American policies through increased interior and exterior enforcement efforts, it is absolutely critical that the members of Congress defend and protect TPS, the construction industry, and our economy by introducing and passing legislation that sets forward a path to citizenship or permanent residence for all TPS recipients in the country. It's an opportunity, and we're all entitled to it. Thank you. You have been listening to Voices from the D.C. Mobilization to Save TPS, which stands for a Temporary Protected Status for Immigrants Fleeing War, Natural Disasters, and Other Dangers in Their Home Countries. These groups are meeting here in D.C. to meet with members of Congress to convince them to, to support TPS. This is On the Ground. Voices of Resistance from the Nation's Capital coming to you from Pacifica Radio in Washington, D.C. And that will do it for today's show. I want to thank my guests, Ryan Grimm and Gerald Horn, and thank you for listening. You can reach On the Ground at our website, onthegroundshow.org, where you can listen to all of our shows. Please like our Facebook and Twitter pages at On the Ground Show. I'm Esther Avaram, reminding you as always to keep raising your voice. Peace. Oh, <laughs> oh,